BRICS 11 is the end of Anglo-American hegemony. More towns demand alternative to Big Four. Expert abandons groupthink on China threat. Coming up on today's Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 31st of August. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robert Barwick. Welcome. Thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, we're going to be discussing the latest BRICS forum that just took place in South Africa, and they've added some new members and are set to expand further. That has big implications. Uh, we'll update you then on our the latest on our campaign to... Uh, create a real alternative and a competitor to the big four banks. And then we're going to discuss uh, the expert who has abandoned the groupthink on the so-called threat from China. He's broken from the herd. Mm, Yeah, so that's good news. Clear heads coming forward yet again. Now, uh, if you want to help us get the word out, don't forget to subscribe and ring the notification bell. Share our material as widely as you can. Contact us always for more information and for literature that you can circulate. Uh, and you can also click on the link below to donate to everything that we're doing to help us keep getting the message out further and winning these ideas. Uh, now, on to our first topic. BRICS 11 is the end of Anglo-American hegemony. So on the uh, 22nd to 24th August, late last week, uh, the leaders of BRICS nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, uh, met in Johannesburg, South Africa for the 15th BRICS summit. And it had been long anticipated because the question on the table was there were a whole host of nations Mm. clamouring to join that BRICS grouping Uh, because of the emphasis they're putting on development, on new financial mechanisms to foster development. This is um, flowing on from what China did after the global financial crash in 2008, where it determined that the physical economy had to be the focus for nations to rebuild out of that crisis and to correct the errors that had led us into that situation, and including, of course, their launching in 2013 of the Belt and Road Initiative. Now... um, there were indeed new members but first uh, that were joined up to the BRICS, but first I wanted to cite uh, the Russian representative who went in Putin's stead, and that is the Foreign Minister, Sergei Lavrov. He said, tectonic shifts are taking place in the world today. We are witnessing the emergence of a more just, multipolar world order. And he, he described the BRICS as one of the pillars of a new, more just, polycentric world order. And by, base, by saying multipolar world order, that's what we referred to in the headline, that's, there's no more Anglo-American hegemony in the sense that you know, America is the sole superpower of the world. It's yeah. just, whatever they might think, it's just not true anymore. Well, that's right, and we'll show some figures that show how this forum represents a real and serious mm. counterweight to the G7. But first of all, the nations that were welcomed in... Um, uh, there were six additional nations, so with the existing five, that makes what some people are calling the BRICS 11, although the, yeah. the title BRICS will remain right. unchanged. Yeah. They're not going to try to add all the, make yeah. the acronym endlessly long because as I'll that, go through... it might get to 40. <laughs> well, absolutely. Um, so these are the countries that have been accepted and they will be members officially of BRICS as of the 1st of January next year. So that's Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. But I just want to read, um, if you give me your patience, I'll read the list of countries that are on the immediate next uh, yeah. list to join who are queued you know, up. This is the queue. This is the queue. Algeria, Bangladesh, Bahrain, Belarus, Bolivia, Venezuela, Vietnam, Guinea, Greece, Honduras, Indonesia, Cuba, Kuwait, Morocco, Nigeria, Tajikistan, Thailand, Tunisia, Turkey and Syria. And there are others beyond that list that have expressed interest but that haven't yet decided fully to go ahead with that. 
Um, so now to go through some of the figures because population. So I want to make a comment before you did. Sorry, I, I was going a bit, bit slow. I just want to make a point in, the, in terms of the new members, the six new members. Iran and Saudi Arabia are on that list. Iran and Saudi Arabia. Like, I don't know if people appreciate. It's almost as big a deal um, as, you know, Israel in an Arab country. In fact, it is as big a deal. There was, just, as, just to illustrate it, there was one of, the, um, one of the Saudi princes who was the ambassador to Washington, Prince Bandar bin Sultan. Um, the former head of MI6, Richard Dearlove, wrote in his book about talking to Bandar and how Bandar, the, the Saudi foreign minister, said that when the Arab world unites, he said, it'll be God help the Shia because we're going to wipe them out. I mean, this was, this was said you know, a couple of decades ago, right? But this is, this is illustrative of the absolute hatred between these Wahhabi Sunni Muslims in Saudi Arabia and the Shia Muslims in Iran, right? Absolute hatred. These bitter enemies. They are now partners together yeah. in the BRICS. And the only thing that can bring that about is what you're about to go through, the, the pulling power, the economic yeah. pulling power that makes them realise, hang on, we've got more in common doing joining that than, than what we have in terms of hating each other. And China's been the key element in bringing such nations together yeah. because it's demonstrated that principle. Put aside your differences yeah. because we need to work together and only if we do so can we get out of this grave crisis the world, the entire world... Un- you know, is universally facing. Um, so population-wise, the BRICS 11 countries now represent 47% of the world population. And we'll put up these graphics um, on the um, GDP figures and so forth. These are figures that were provided by a geopolitical analyst by the name of Pepe Escobar, who follows this situation very, very closely. Uh, and so he reports uh, that... The BRICS 11 have a larger GDP when you adjust it for purchasing power parity, which just is an adjustment that takes into account the different values of different currencies. So they have a larger GDP adjusted for that measure than the G7. So that's the figure in the middle. You can see the total GDP um, just in the gross figures, but then the adjusted figure is the middle figure on those graphs. And it's a better way of looking at it because the... The, the US may have a, on paper, a bigger GDP still mm. than China for now. But China's, China can buy a hell of a lot more with its GDP than the Americans are capable of, partly because China manufactures for itself mm. and the Americans no longer do, right? So in terms of what you've got this thing called money, what can you do with it? This PPP, purchasing power parity, is a much more um, accurate measure. That's right. These countries are the biggest sector of the economy, mm. the global economy now. And in real terms, those BRICS 11 countries have a smaller debt, as you can also see much in those graphs, smaller debt. than the G7 countries. Um, they, you know, they've got <clears throat> big credit and China's a big credit nation. Now, with the addition of these new six nations... The BRICS 11 now controls 39% of global oil exports, 45.9% of proven oil reserves and 47.6% of oil, all oil produced globally. So that's another very big thing, of course. It's an oil and gas powerhouse. And in terms of Anglo-American hegemony, Anglo-American hegemony is underpinned by two things. US military firepower and the US dollar. Mm. Both of those, for a long time, have been seen as impregnable. But I was just having a conversation before this. we started the show, Elisa, with some real experts, um, some American experts on this. The reality of not being able to beat the Afghans in the Afghan war and all the other wars that they fought where they still think they're invincible, but they clearly aren't, shows you that their military firepower it's not that it's an illusion. It's, they've got military firepower, but um, it's actually you know, much weaker than, than people assume it is. And the US dollar is definitely much weaker than they would like to think it is, partly because since 1972, well, 70, since 1973, sorry, it's been called the petrodollar, right? Because a lot of its strength has come from the fact that the Saudis agreed in 73 that all settlement for oil deals must be in US dollars. Well, 
the Saudis mm-hmm. are now part of the BRICS, mm-hmm. and they, they, that, that grouping controls 39% of global oil exports. And if they say, well, we'll start taking other currencies other than the US dollar, this is the end of the US, the beginning of the end of the US dollar. And that is what underpins Anglo-American hegemony. Mm, that's right. Uh, and there were various discussions about, of course, accelerating the use of local BRICS currencies for trade, which, of course, we've been talking about yep. for some time. Um, there's, there's nothing new in terms of new specifics coming out of the summit other than um, each nation is going to return and assign the relevant people in the relevant countries to look at um, the procedures and the processes and the mechanisms to uh, extricate their financial systems from that which is bound by the US dollar. So yeah, and they're not, not and they're not trying to blow up the world. They, no. that's the other thing. Like they they're not going to say, mm. hang on, they're not getting there in South Africa and saying, how can we bring down like the Americans right now? They're not trying to do that. They need an orderly, stable United States economy, etc. But they are going to be making these moves. And um, Dilma Rousseff, who's the head of the New Development Bank, which is the BRICS Development Bank, um, she and she was the former Brazilian president when it was formed, um, she specifically said, look, local currencies are not alternatives to the dollar. But then the next sentence out of her mouth was, they're alternatives to a system. Yep. So you've got this current prevailing financial economic system, which these leaders can see is self-destructing um, and it needs to be changed. So she said, so far, the system has been unipolar. It's going to be substituted by a more multipolar system. And she went on to describe that the lending of the new development bank will not be contingent on conditionalities like the IMF says, we'll lend you this money if you change these policies X, Y, Z. She said the NDB will respect the local policies of the governments and respect the fact that they know what they're doing in their own countries. The NDB is a bank made by developing countries for themselves. Mm. So it's bringing the weight of those developing countries forward and, as we said in the headline, thus ending the hegemony of the current system. Now, all of the leaders in their addresses to the plenary sessions of the BRICS um, were singing that same note that, you know, we need to reform the current system. And uh, to quote the Chinese president, because he was most explicit about it, as I said, the Chinese have been since the GFC, he said we need to fully leverage the role of the new development bank, push forward reform of the international financial and monetary systems and increase the representation and voice of developing countries. Now, in terms of specific updates on the new development bank, BRICS, the new BRICS 11 members, Egypt and United Arab Emirates and prospective BRICS member Bangladesh all joined the new development bank back in March and Rousseff confirmed that she and the bank is, are considering applications from fifth for membership to the bank so that they can you know, borrow mm. from the bank for their purposes um, locally from another 15 countries. And this would be the basis, especially when you're bringing in countries like the UAE, for instance, yeah. and or Saudi Arabia, you know, for a big expansion of capital and lending capacity and they're aiming to have 30% of their lending um, done in currencies other than the US dollar. Now, um, the New Development Bank issued its first bond issue in the South African RAND last week. Uh, As soon as October, it's hoping to issue its first bond issue denominated in the Indian rupee. Uh, and it's considering future bond issues in the currencies of Brazil and the UAE. Um, and it's also looking at, well, there's also discussion, different people are proposing this, about the five founding members' currencies becoming um, mm. uh, part of a pool that can be jo- jointly used called the R5, because it just yeah. so happens to be yeah. that every name of the currency starts with an R. Um, and, and then you've got some real muscle in terms of an alternative to the US, anyway, these, to the US dollar. These are some of the conversations that are taking mm. place. 
Now, a lot of the other discussion, um, of course, as you would expect, was around infrastructure. So there were examples provided there where the new development bank has recently um, agreed or established a loan agreement to build phase two of a massive um, dam scheme and hydroelectric scheme to provide water and power for South Africa and Lesotho. Um, There's also um, China-South Africa agreements that were signed in a bilateral series of bilateral meetings between Mm -hmm. the South African and Chinese presidents. Uh, there was a China-South Africa development forum which followed the very successful Russia-Africa development forum where many agreements were signed in St. Petersburg um, back a month or so ago. And also at the BRICS summit, Putin discussed establishment of what he called a permanent BRICS transport commission. And um, he marked the great progress that's been made in Uh, finalising the International North-South Transportation Corridor, which allows Russian access to Africa via alternative routes than the Suez Canal and goes down into India and so forth. Um, And that would link in, as he described it, with the Arctic Sea Route, which is another alternative um, means to go from east to west and the east-west corridors of the Belt and Road. And he wants to make there's a focus of Russia's chairmanship of the BRICS, which commences next year. Yep. Um, a big subset of that discussion and the, the China-Africa meetings was that Africa is insisting to develop itself. It needs to ditch colonialism. And there was much discussion about um, the neo-colonialism that comes with Anglo-American hegemony, including things like sanctions policy, which is hurting the developing and the poor countries the most. And that's why, of course, they want to um, be free of the US dollar system or at least have alternatives. And also just the reality that when, even from the 50s on with the big decolonisation process of Africa, um, what what would happen in most cases is the Union Jack would come down or the flags of some of these other European powers, but mm. the British were the big one. But the British would still own the banks, they'd still own the mining companies, etc. right? And yeah. so from a practical standpoint, all the, 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 the wealth and trappings of colonialism and empire kept flowing into the city of London. Mm-hmm. And over the, the original leaders, the founding fathers of these African nations, so many of them understood that and stood up against it and were determined to change it and they got assassinated, mm-hmm. right? And so that's led to this period of decades of a lot of um, puppet regimes and corruption, etc. cetera. Mm. Um, but now there is a greater power, there, there's a rival um, power in the world to this, it's called the Washington Consensus, you referenced it earlier with the IMF conditions on loans, etc. Mm. The, the, um, the way the, the, the Americans and the Europeans would, would use debt to force these countries to adopt policies that gave Western corporations still that control over their resources, right? But now there's other, another player, the Chinese and the BRICS, mm. were saying, hang on, we will do those kind of deals that Rousseff's talking about, yeah. no conditions, let's just do something that's win-win, that benefits you, that benefits us. And with those alternatives, these African countries are saying, okay, let's well, weaken right. colonialism. Yeah, the African countries are looking at BRICS as... You know, this is a powerful player that we can align with that can stand up for us. So we're not on our own. I mean, Modi, the Indian Prime Minister, is talking about, because India's chairing the G20, bringing the African Union in as a member of the G20. So there's other proposals like that. And, and Elisa, there was... This is not that... Some people will understand this, but one of the actual issues with um, Gaddafi in Libya. And Libya was a, one of the most, probably the most advanced African country. Gaddafi wanted to, to and as did Saddam Hussein in his own way, he wanted, he wanted to do an alternative to trade in the US dollar for oil, right? He, he, he went with, the, um, uh, with the, uh, the euro when it started and, and um, that definitely played a role in the move against him. But Gaddafi was also saying, hang on, all of Africa can get together and come up with an alternative to the US dollar as well. Right, and look what happened to him. But these are these are, um, and that's not to say anything about their character. But I can tell you that uh, after everything we've experienced since, so much of what you, you you think you know about these guys to be true turns out to be lies anyway. 
But that's the point was there was a um, individually as countries they couldn't take on the system, mm. and that's where that's what the Africans were used to that experience. But now you've got this massive power, right? The yeah. BRICS represent massive power. And it changes an, the dynamic, and there's a possibility now. It's another pole. So you think of the two poles of a magnetic spectrum. You know, yep. if there were only one, that's a big difference to adding another and one. We, we people of goodwill inside the countries that are part of the, the older one, the older system have to recognise this mm, because mm. we have to say, hang on, why is this a bad thing? Why should we consider this a threat? We should be supporting these developments, supporting the African countries and their aspiration. If the Chinese can help them, well and good. And why can't we participate too? And that would be a much better approach than some people in Washington, in London, in Canberra right now who are saying, how can we blow this up? Yeah. Um, so just to end out on this topic, because I just did want to quote two of the leaders on this idea of ditching the colonialism and the neo-colonialism. So the South African president, Ramaphosa, he said, African countries have made it clear that the investors of choice are those who will process the resources here close to source. So in other words, no more minerals extraction, resources extraction for your own good. Uh, And the Brazilian president, Lula da Silva, said, if we are not to remain mere exporters of primary products, we must take the opportunity to forge the integration of our production chains and add value to the goods and services we produce in a sustainable way. So that's just basic stuff. Every nation has to think about that. Um, And I think a beautiful example too, which you can read more about in our Australian Alert Service newsletter this week, is what India's just done uh, with their moon landing on the, um, uh, the south pole of the moon and what they aspire to as a space-faring nation, which is very exciting. Uh, this, is a, this is a huge mm. accomplishment. And I tell you what, it's brought out the racists, including Nigel Farage. That mm. uh, Some of these people, you know, and we don't hate Nigel Farage. Last time I mentioned him in the show, I mentioned him in positive terms because of the, his fight against debanking. But he starts grandstand the other day about why is India, po- poverty-stricken India, spending money on... On, on um, going to the moon when, when it's so poor, oh. right? Because partly there's a there's a some some he, Nigel Farage is an old style John Bull British Empire guy, mm. right? Sorry, he is, and they can't stand the idea that the Browns and Blacks are doing things that the Poms have never done. <laughs> Britain's not one of the powers that's ever been to the moon, mm. right? Whereas before the before the white Europeans went to India and went to China. These countries represented a quarter of the world's economy each. They were the advanced rich countries before they got plundered and looted. And now, it's taken a while, but they're getting their mojo back after a century or more, right? Um, It's taken a while. Uh, China's leading. India's uh, trying to play catch-up. It's precisely this kind of investment to keep their... to have a a high technology edge yes. on their economy mm. that gives their, that's going to give their economy power to cut through. And not high technology. The Americans have defined technology in the last 20 years as information technology, which, which basically means quicker and faster and more comprehensive ways of staring into our own belly buttons. Mm. These guys are saying, no, no, let's go real technology. Let's explore the stars. Let's do yeah. this kind of stuff. Yeah. And this is a hell of a... No, no country's landed on the South Pole of the Moon before. India's now done it and they deserve immense congratulations. And the Chinese congratulated them and said, let's work together on this. It's a brilliant basis for collaboration. Modi um, celebrated this at the BRICS Forum. So it was a great highlight of that event. People across India were watching um, Modi at the BRICS. And And it's not an easy thing to do. The Russians (laughs) were in a bit of a race with them. I'm I'm not sure. The race part was probably exaggerated. And it's no, Russians are no slouches. Mm. They are the pioneers of space. Their, their craft crashed, which is a danger. It can happen, mm. right? The, the, the Indians were able to do it, and, it's, and it's, it deserves immense congratulations. But before we move on, I'll just back to the, the quotes there. I just want to mention, we've got a country just above Australia, a poverty-stricken developing country that's in this fight as well yeah. to, to have... It's to process onshore rather than have the colonial model. And that's, that's um, Timor-Leste, right? Timor-Leste gets this oil, has its part share in the Greater Sunrise oil field. Um, Janana Guzmao wants to have the refinery in 
Timor-Leste, because that's where the wealth is made, right, yes. from the refinery. And he's, he's in a pitch battle, mm. and of course Australia and all the, the Wall Street, London financial types are screwing Timor to, to, to make sure they don't get the refinery that we have it in, in Australia, mm. right, so that they will always be a dirt-poor developing country that can be plundered for their resources and be defenceless against that. Well, they if we if we keep treating them this way, yeah, Timor may join well, the BRICS too. I tell you what, we better hurry up and get with the program and get on the BRICS the same page as the BRICS so that we get an invitation or we might be excluded. <laughs> because right. also Indonesia, you know, massive population, big country right to our north as well. Um, Joko Widodo was at the BRICS summit. Actually, and- look at the photo. Look at this massive, mm. great oh, panorama yeah. photo. Look, mm. you see Widodo right there at the front. This is a huge gathering, really. He really promoted collaboration between BRICS and the ASEAN nations. I mean, this is our region. China's in our region. We have to get with the program. Now, to get with the program, let's discuss our next topic because one of the first stepping stones could be to get public banking going. So more towns demand alternative to big four. So we've had some um, break, well, one particular really important breakthrough this week, if you want to go through that, coming out of um, regional New South Wales. The Tamora Shire Council passed a motion this month, which is a reversal of a vote they took in in, uh, November last year. So November last year, 2022, um, Councillor Anthony Irvine of the Tamora Council moved a motion for the Tamora Council to support a postal bank. And the motion was voted down. And this actually doesn't happen very often. Mm-hmm. Most councils, ha- uh, you know, when they debate this, they're happy to support the idea of a postal bank. But Tamora didn't. One of the, the, one of the objections at the time was, um, oh, if, if we support this, this will just play into the bank's hands and it will give them an excuse to leave town. Mm. And it's an ignorant objection. Uh, sorry, not to, not to be personal, but it is an ignorant objection because the point is what they don't understand is that what the postal bank will provide, what a public bank operating in post office will provide um, is an alternative to the big four so that when they decide to leave town, they actually have to factor in, are we going to lose our business when we leave town yes. to the bank that's always going to stay there because it's a public bank, right? And therefore, it's going to stop banks from closing down. Right, it's actually going to. I think it's going to make them um, open more branches. But anyway, so that was their position um, in November 2022. Well, this month they took another vote and they reversed their position because NAB has announced to Tamora that they're shutting the Tamora branch, and so Tamora has been hit with bank branch closures. And suddenly they get it, and the council. And this is symbolic of what's happening around Australia. The councils thought, no, no, we need to do this. And in the discussion, it was quite interesting. We quoted some of it in the article here. Mm. Um, uh, Councillor uh, Councillor Irvine, who moved it, said, if we don't help ourselves, I think we're going to end up with no banking services in rural and regional New South Wales and Australia. <laughs> Councillor Claire McLaren, she, she supported it quite strongly on the basis that this councillor had just taken a trip to Uluru in the Red Centre, Ayers Rock, and she was really shocked because you can't use cash out there because there's no none of the businesses take cash because there's no banks to put it in if they get paid It'll in get cash. Change from or- and so the, the, the mayor or the president of this shire, when he heard that, was really shocked. He said, fancy not taking legal tender anywhere in your country. Mm. Um, but that's the way, apparently, that's what she found out there in Uluru. And, of course, that mm. means that they better find a way to keep the power on permanently at, Ayers, at Uluru because <laughs> right. if, if the power fails, no one will be able to transact, right? We anyway. just had the report from AEMO saying we're going to have interruptions for the next decade <laughs> there you go. because we haven't sorted out our system and renewables ain't going to cut and it. They're calling, they're calling the energy minister blackout Bowen as a result of that. Um, and then Council Lindy Reinhold, who seconded the motion, said, I think we need if we sit back and say nothing, we're compliant. We need to say enough is enough. So this is... This is worth highlighting because it is a change of heart. And it's a change of heart forced by um, the cruel experience of banks closing branches, right? Which is one of the reasons we're making such an issue out of this because it does have a devastating effect on these towns. And what we need the towns to do is get behind this campaign and more and more and more pass such motions so that Canberra notices that, you know, we've now got 16 councils that have done it. We've got a bit of a deep, we've had taken a bit of a detour in terms of actually trying to fight against these bank branch closures. So um, 
the, 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 the process of councils and of us asking councils to pass these motions slowed down a little bit. But we're going we're gonna to ramp it up because we need a lot more of them to pass these motions, mm. to send a message to Canberra, this is the solution that we need. A public bank is the, that is the only way you can take on these big four and their bastardry. And it's, it's not um, coincidental that Tamora is in that same region with Junee and Wagga Wagga where we've yeah. had a lot of action, a lot of motion. We've got a lot of our activists that are pushing this idea. Um, we're seeing the same thing in other areas um, from Waruna, where last week we put up some coverage on the screen and uh, we would have put up the coverage too of the, um, the Tamora decision that was in the local paper. But Waruna, uh, the NAB, well, which NAB, is in Western NAB, Australia... NAB, NAB waited until the week after the hearings in Western Australia to announce yep. they're closing the Waruna branch. And it was so cynical. The, 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 the locals are in an uproar. And it got a lot of publicity for, mm-hmm. for that reason. And as I spoke to the Shire president there, and, and it's like that, um, NAB, they can't just, just even just close the branch. They've got to close the branch and take away the ATM, even though they know these, yeah. these um, towns need cash. They can't function without yeah. it. Yeah. Now, we're being, we're being inundated, actually, with people contacting us, telling us things like, you know, Bank West are telling their small bank customers, we don't want your business, go elsewhere. We've got things, people telling us that um, their local post office is saying they won't be taking cash at all within a year. You know, there are rumours that get around. That one turns out That one out was a rumour. So yeah, the rumour which, the rumour was the packet, no, it's, the, 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 the event wasn't a rumour. Someone at the Packet and Post Office, one of the staff there had said to a customer and the customer went public with it that, oh, we won't be taking cash next year. Um, post offices won't be taking cash next year. Now that one, we've had that corrected because the licensed post office group mm. is, which has to, which represents the small business franchise post offices. They know there's no alternative to cash in regional Australia. In and, post offices, yeah. And they know us. They've, they've confirmed to me Australia Post is actually not game to go down this yeah. path for now, which is good. But. The fact that there's even talk about things like that yep. is a result of a certain dynamic in place, which is that we're going digital and that's it. And the other reports we've been getting, a, n- a number of reports of people just saying, you know, I was in a bank queue of 30 people, you know, for an hour. And, and someone else who said um, that the people in the bank, this was a different case, were getting so agitated they thought there might have been a riot any minute. <laughs> that's how bad it's getting. Look. To the viewer, if you're stuck in a queue, whip out your phone, take a photo and send it to us. We're going to compile these photos, right? Mm. They are happening. So they are the number one proof that the banks are lying through their teeth. The banks are saying when they shut down these branches, no one's coming to the branch. Well, if you're stuck in a queue ever, it's not true, is it? Mm-hmm. They ask, people are going to branches. That's where queues come from. And I heard about the one in a branch in the Gold Coast, a bank branch in the Gold Coast, with about 30 people in it, mm. right, and everyone getting agitated. So take photos, send it to it. We're going to rub these things in the bank's faces. We've caught them lying. And the problem is not a big enough deal has been made of it yet for the NAP, bank like NAB, which is the one that basically admitted they were lying because they said they don't measure the visits. They don't count the visits that don't involve transactions. Mm. And so if you're stuck in a queue and only two people in that queue are actually get there to deposit or withdraw cash. And the rest of people are there to do other things like update a signature or um, inco- do something, pro- something process-wise to, turn, to, to work related to, say, um, a power of attorney or, or, or executing a will or any number of things, right? None of those people are being counted by the bank systems. You may as well not exist. I mean, Craig Isherwood told us, his story with CBO the other day, mm. um, and there was a non-transaction visit that took ages and ages and ages. So it's, those ones, don't they just don't get counted. And then the banks are going around saying, oh, we're having record low need for branch services. It's not true. So take photos, send it to them, we'll help publicise this. Now, there was also coverage in the Weekly Times um, that even referenced the Christine Holgate's fight for Bank at Post too, which was interesting. Well, it was a very clever, very cleverly worded um, editorial in the Weekly Times. But basically, it's pointing uh, 
the, the editorial pointed out that ANZ is the only bank that's not part of Bank at Post. And that's really, I mean, it's bad enough for every other bank customer when their bank pulls out of town, they're told, go to the post office, because you can only go to the post office for cash. And, and even then at a restricted rate. And even then you pay a hefty fee to <clears throat> use it, right? But at least you can do that. If you're an ANZ customer and your, your bank leaves town, you can't even go to the post office. So um, uh, the Weekly Times pointed out that Christine Holgate had, had said five years ago that Shane Elliott was selfish for not signing up to the Bank at Post deal of $22 million a year to, for, a bank, for Australia Post to serve their customers. So um, the Weekly Times said it's time for um, uh, ANZ to sign up to Bank at Post. Yeah. Um, now, I just wanted to contrast this to overseas because we reported in the alert service last week that a legislation has just passed in the United Kingdom to protect cash access Um, So this is in the Financial Services and Markets Act 2023, which compels British regulator the Financial Conduct Authority to ensure reasonable provision of cash access services in the United Kingdom or any part of the United Kingdom. Um, And similarly, there's moves to protect customers' uh, access to cash and or their ability to legally use or to force businesses and other places to actually accept cash, which is a equally important thing because if you can access cash, that's one thing, but can you actually use it anyway? Because, yeah. you know, by law, even in Australia, businesses don't have to accept it. They can choose not to. So in places like Norway, Spain, Sweden and Finland, um, there are legislative measures in place or a process to bring legislation into effect to protect cash access or cash use. Uh, and we also heard about a case this week in where Austria, the Chancellor of Austria, is making moves personally as the head of the country, the leader of the country, to uh, protect cash use with a three-point plan um, that he's appointed the Finance Minister to work on. And there'll be a roundtable in September between ministries, the banking industry and the central bank to protect the right to of cash access and cash use, the central bank would be obliged to make sure cash is available and to make sure that the banks provide access. Mm. So this sort of thing is coming up more and more all over the world. And they but he, the fact that he wants to, the, the Chancellor of Austria wants to put this in the Constitution. Yeah. That's yeah. a big deal. Yeah. Like that, that means that's people saying, well, not only do we want to put the brakes on this here, we want to put an anchor down. You're not going past this point. So, and why shouldn't they? Like, why shouldn't we have a system where, yeah, do what you want with technology. Seriously, do what you want. But you do not have the right to take away the oldest and best and most reliable form of transacting that is, um, you know, ready in all weathers, all, all climates, all circumstances, etc. You just do not have the right to do that. You do not have the right to sit on a bank board and say, man, if we can get rid of cash, we can just grab everyone's transactions and all their data, etc. And, and um, you know, no one can stop us. No, you do not have the right to do that. Mm. That's what the, the Austrians are doing. And while I'm ranting on, I want to just make another point because I think people understand. It's one thing to say, okay, access to cash is important. But yeah, um, you've got to be able to use it, mm. right? And in Australia, we're, we're in discussions about this. I'm having discussions with legal people, etc. Can you require businesses to take cash? Um, without getting into too much, this is one of the there's a there's a thing that goes around about what's called social credit, which is the idea that they want everybody's transactions to all be tracked, etc. And whenever you hear people talk about social credit, they say China's social credit system, China's social credit system. Can I say definitively now? And I'll prove it in the future. Almost everything you've ever heard about China's social credit system is a pile of garbage. It's not true. It's a total, it's, 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 it's taken something that happened in China and combined it with a, with a TV series called Black Mirror, right, which was deliberately dystopian to make it seem like that's what China's doing. No, it's not. What China calls social credit is a way of enforcing the law on companies in China. It's a big economy with big, um, with lots of companies, and you know um, the government has to find ways to enforce the law. 
but it is not a system over there where everything you do is completely tracked, etc. And one of the proofs of that is there is one country in the world where every business is required to take cash by law, and it's the People's Republic of China. The People's Republic of China requires every business to take cash by law. So even though they have this, they have literally the best telephone payment system on earth in WeChat. Mm. Elon Musk is is totally jealous of it, right? It is, and people are flashing their phones all the time because it's a very efficient payment system, etc. Every business, no business in China has the right to reject cash. Good. That's China compared to us. Now. Raise this with your local council um, if they haven't, if they're not one of the 16 um, councils, and we'll put those 16 up on the screen. Congratulate them if you like, if you live there. But if yours hasn't, um, yeah, bring yep. it up to them. And also, there's. Um, well, all councils, take heart from this, contact your council, especially if yep. you live in a regional yep. area and say, we need to get behind That's this. That's right. And there's local government association meetings coming up. We can get local um, councils like Juni and Wagga and Tamora working together and from all over the country, you know, we've created contact between WA and New South Wales councils and South Australia. Yep. I mean, this is a powerful force when you get those leaders, local leaders working together with groups like us and others and coming to bear also through the very, very important um, parliamentary inquiry that is ongoing um, and has more hearings yet to come. So... Uh, that's on that topic. Let's move on to topic number three. Expert abandons groupthink on China threat. Now, we are talking in this segment about a top Lowy Institute strategic analyst and who was also formerly in the Office of National Assessments, Sam Rogeven. 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 <laughs> That's what I said. Um, now, he is saying that um, China is not a credible threat to Australia. The real threat is our alliance with the US of A. And he's put out a new book called The Echidna Strategy, Australia's Search for Power and Peace. And we reported in the alert service this week about an advance essay that he has written, but it was in the Australian Foreign Affairs magazine. And But his book is based on this idea... Um, otherwise known as the porcupine or hedgehog strategy. But in our case, the echidna strategy that Australia's um, defence policy should be spiky but unthreatening. <laughs> um, and he has two basic ideas. One is that the US is not really at risk in Asia, is not really in danger of being no. threatened by China in any way, shape or form. So it's a contrived threat. Yeah. And secondly, he makes the point about the tyranny of distance being a very real factor. As he puts it, Beijing is closer to London than Sydney, right? And then he goes on to say China's southern naval base in Hainan is 4,000 kilometres from Australia's most northern city, Darwin. So for China to invade us or launch any kind of attack on us, it's not... Unless we were the greatest... Australia was the greatest threat on Earth to China... They're not going to be thinking in that way. To act, and, and so this is an echo of what Paul Keating said back in March at the National Press Club, right? Just people, you've got to look through the, the bubbles that are coming out of these politicians' mouths and realise that's just what they are, bubbles. There is no content to them at all. So threat, 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 threat. Paul Keating said a threat is an invasion, right? Can China invade Australia? The only way this is even plausible is if China literally had nothing else to do in the world, no other objective yeah. whatsoever, and decided... One focus. One focus. All energy. We're going to take over that country, <laughs> and the minute there's any kind of other obstacle in the way, it wouldn't work, because it's, it's just such a ridiculous proposition. Plus, there's 500, 1,000 years of history to show the Chinese don't go around the world invading. They just don't do it, mm. right? They got, they got their hands full looking after the biggest population in the world, or now the second biggest population in the world, and they're just not interested in that kind of thing. So he said, look, just cut the rubbish, and like Paul Keating said, cut the rubbish. But if we are determined to make ourselves a threat to China, mm -hmm. we are going to force China to take certain action. Yeah. And just by way of an update that's not in, in the alert this week, from a conversation I just had with some 
um, incredibly high-ranking American sources, uh, when I say high-ranking, high-ranking in terms of historically high-ranking, very, very experienced foreign policy and defence policy um, experts, um, the person I spoke to made two points. One, how significant it was that the American official known as Kurt Campbell, um, Biden's Asia czar, mm. the guy who has gone around creating this um, Indo-Pacific-based coalition against China, Kurt Campbell, based on the AUKUS pact, he said, and, and my, my source pointed out how revealing it was, he says, we have locked Australia in for the next 40 years. Mm. Locked Australia in mm. for the next 40 years. These American decision makers are saying, we run Australian policy on this for the next 40 years. Locked Australia into what? Into the very thing that China is starting to feel threatened by. And so the second, and, and now, particularly significant, before I go on, that Kurt Campbell is the person who, more than 20 years ago, made the suggestion that Australia should start a think tank, which we now have called the Lowy Institute. <laughs> And why we said Sam Rogovin is broken from the herd is he's from the Lowy Institute. This Lowy Institute has been second only to Aspie in whipping up this anti-China threat stuff. Mm. He's broken from the herd, from the group thing, to say, no, this is rubbish. And he's actually getting a lot of publicity for it. But the second point he made is that if this, if, if the, the decision makers in the United States who do not want to recognise that the unipolar moment is over, the American Anglo-American empire or Anglo-American hegemony, they might still have their empire for now, but it's dying. The hegemony is over, right? If they don't want to recognise that and they're determined to be as threatening to China as possible, they've, they've got 800 bases in the world, 300 bases surround China, and they're, 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 if they're determined to do that and they put China in a position where it has to lash back, hit back somehow, China will not under any circumstances, want to launch any kind of nuclear exchange with the United States. Just like you're seeing it, what, what, just as we're seeing in Ukraine right now between Russia and NATO. They, they're at pains not to fire at each other. It's all done on a proxy field in NATO, in Ukraine, right? This would be the same thing. There's no way China is going to want to engage the United States directly that could cause a danger of a nuclear exchange. Just no way. So what's the next best thing they could do to, to be the greatest display of force? He said, the person I'm talk, I was talking to said, would be a missile attack on Australia. Not on, a, not on an American target in Australia, on Australia. And he suggested, say, somewhere like Woomera, where the, the nuclear testing used mm. to take place. And there's lots of radiation in the ground and whatever. You know, blow something like that up. That's what we are risking by... by by turning ourselves into a target of a country that doesn't want to target us mm. by going along with this crazy American agenda. Yeah, well, um, just to get into the specific of what Rogivan said, because he, he explained how uh, the greatest danger to Australia in terms of that kind of reaction was created by our inviting the Americans to uh, ho or base their B-52 bombers, whether they're nuclear-armed or not, they're, they're, in the Northern Territory. Nuclear, the, the term is they're nuclear-capable. We yeah. will never know if they've got weapons on them or not. And if we don't know, it means the Chinese don't know and the Chinese have to assume they have. Yeah, because those B-52s and, he said, the nuclear-powered attack subs pose a threat to China's nuclear infrastructure, including their defence in the event of a launch of a nuclear weapon. So this is how he put it. He said um, those um, B-52s and subs could be tasked with striking China's nuclear infrastructure such as missile silos and bases, command and control facilities, early warning radars that let China know of an impending nuclear attack and air defence facilities designed to keep its nuclear bases safe. So far from the deterring China, he said, hosting these bombers uh, buying these subs does precisely the opposite. He said it is hard to overstate the sensitivity involved in threatening another nation's nuclear forces. Yep. That, that's a very big deal. Well, if you want an example, it's why there's a war in Ukraine. Because the, the closer NATO expanded and the more the Americans put weapons that were designed to take out 
Russia's yeah. nuclear defence yeah. closer and closer to Russia, Russia eventually said, "Look, here's the red line. Don't cross it. America crossed it. Bang. There's now yeah. a war." But same thing happened in 1962. It's called the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? This time the, the shoe was on the other foot. This is deadly serious. Sam Rogovine is dead right, and um, uh, I'm just heartened, Elisa, that it's that that one. He's come out and said it with the credentials he has, breaking from the herd, the group think that he's been part of, mm. right? A very big deal. The timing of him saying it post just after the. Um, the, the Australian Labor Party conference where Albo had to muscle people into shutting up and backing the AUKUS deal, right? Mm. It's looking increasingly stupid, right, and, and um, spineless by him to, to, towards our allies, um, and he's going to just fuel a greater and greater revolt against himself, and so he deserves to. So he deserves to. If he's going to be the... He, he could have been the next, you know, John Curtin. Instead, he's choosing to be the next, you know... Um, uh, Billy McMahon or some nobody prime minister, mm. right? Um, that that is absolutely spineless on these matters. So, uh, the whole premise of three hundred sixty-eight billion dollars in submarines—a guy who is genuinely one of the top experts in Australia—and saying this is all rubbish. In fact, it's the spending on that that's going to. This is not going to set def- protect us from anything. It's the spending on it that is going to make us mm. a, put us in danger, and it's an echo of our friend. The, the late, great Malcolm Fraser, yeah. um, he wrote a book in 2014 called Dangerous Allies. And I remember the day Craig Isher and I, Ishwood and I went and met him and he just got the book back. He had a, he had a first copy. He gave us a copy. Like, and, and he goes, and he was really proud. He had this little blurb on there. Australia, the blurb was, Australia needs the United States for its security, but Australia only needs security because of the United States, mm. right? And that's what he said in 2014. That's what Sam Rogovine is essentially saying now. And we Aussies have to realise, well, wake up and smell the, yeah. the, um, you know, the, the, the napalm in the morning, to quote Vietnam. And before that happens, change the politics of this in this country. We, we can either, our whole politics and our whole economics is dominated by war. We talked about it last week. They even want the super funds to start funding weapon, the manufacturing of weapons of war. That's what we're talking about. Mm. But we started this show talking about a totally different perspective, an exciting perspective of nations banding together around economic development. We could be part of that rather than part of this suicide pact. Yeah, look, for every one of those... Sam Rogovines or Paul Keatings, you can bet there's actually hundreds of others that are not quite game to speak <laughs> up yet. And between that, that shift that's commencing in Australia, between the BRICS shift that you just remind us, uh, reminded us of happening globally, the current is changing, right? The tide is turning and, you know, join in, contact us. We'll send you an alert service if you haven't seen one before. Click the button to donate, subscribe to the alert service, contact your counsellor, get engaged. We've got a winning strategy here. We just have to make it happen. That's all we've got time for this week. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you again next week. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.